This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week, we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, I'll be looking at Rishi Sunak's response to the migrant crisis, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, and the joy of hating the Qatar World Cup. First up, in his cover piece, Patrick O'Flynn asks whether Rishi Sunak can navigate the migrant crisis. He joins me now with Sunder Katwala, director of the think tank British Future. Patrick, could you start by talking our listeners through the numbers that we're talking about here and why you think they've grown so much? I think the crisis really begins in the public mind. With Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister, the first coverage of small boat crossing starts then. And Boris, in one of his first statements to camera as Prime Minister, says, we will send you back. And at that stage, we're dealing with a few hundred during the year. And then it comes the year after couple of thousand, uh, then 8,000, eight, you know, 18,000, 28,000, and we've now hit 40,000. And the, the sending back never happened. If it had been nipped in the bud, I think it, it could have been controlled. But now the government's faced with, with uh, presiding over a system where more than ever our agencies are actually escorting illegal arrivals into Britain with a vanishingly small prospect of them ever leaving and it's obviously leading to public outrage a feeling the social contract is being broken there's even a a story in kent from the county council about their public services for long-term residents being under strain no spare school places and the system i think to a large number of people is obviously being gamed and it's being gamed in a context where people feel we haven't got our position on cultural integration sorted out We have public services under great pressure. The housing stock is not adequate for the people already in the country, for British nationals. And all these things are piling up. And yet the government doesn't seem to want to do anything that would actually be effective because of fighting shy of liberal establishment opinion, whether at home or abroad. So and I think public patience, particularly among 2019 Conservative voters and Leave voters, is wearing very thin. Final point, under the radar, the government has been running an ultra-liberal migration policy in respect of legal immigration too, which is sort of part of the wider context. Sander, I wonder if you'd like to respond to that. I mean, particularly the point about public patience, because your organisation, British Future, recently released a publication which spoke about how the salience of immigration to the public, you believe, is overestimated. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I think I think it's right to say the public are very frustrated about the lack of control on asylum. This year is different to last year because what was happening in 2020 and 2021 was that we were getting a similar number of asylum applications to before, but in the pandemic context, people were now crossing by boat, which is a visibly uncontrolled, clearly very dangerous way to travel, and that's nobody's idea of a well-managed immigration system. There is a separation in public attitudes between asylum 
different refugee issues and different immigration issues because the salience has stayed very low despite this crisis. Average salience in the Ipsos Mori issues index for immigration was 40% 2015 and 2016. It stayed at around 8%. It's going up to 12% now. So it's the, it's the number eight issue. It's higher for 2019 Conservatives. It's their third issue. There's been a warming of attitudes and a softening of attitudes. So Boris Johnson's overall approach to controlled and managed immigration, that he wants to control it but not especially reduce it, broadly chimed with where the public were on students, on what's true about Hong Kongers, what's true about post-study leave, what's true about NHS visas. But that's in the context of managed migration and not being able to have a controlled, managed, orderly and humane asylum system is not going to get you public consent. It's going to get you a very polarised debate where 40% of the country want the toughest approach possible, 30-40% of the country want the most compassionate approach possible. And we have a debate about the language in which we talk about refugees and asylum instead of a debate about how to have control and compassion. Well, so on the point about control of the asylum system then, Sander, I wonder what your thoughts are on, on this. So, so Fraser Nelson interviewed former Justice Secretary Robert Buckland for the magazine this week. He mentions in the piece that in 2014, 87% of Asylum claims were processed within six months, and this year it's 4%. What do you think has gone wrong here? Is it to do with the sheer number of people we're having to process, or is there something wrong in the kind of bureaucracy of the system that just keeps getting worse? We know it's not about the numbers we're having to process. It's a failure of the state to have a working system. We know that because there's a backlog of 100,000 when there were 40,000 this year, 40,000 last year. So the the drop from 80% in six months to very few in six months happened before the pandemic and before the pressure of rising numbers. And that is terrible for people whose lives are put on hold. It makes it much less likely that if your claim is refused, that it will be possible to return you safely. And it's a fantastic waste of public money because it's now costing us six million pounds a day for the system to fall over and you know we're going to get judicial reviews now of detention that is unlawful at Manston where people are meant to be there 24 hours so we've just sent 20 million pounds to Rwanda on top of the 120 million pounds we paid which was just a bum to sign the deal and to do the press conference we've sent 20 million pound for the setup costs of a system that is probably never going to happen and if it happens, might process 200 people. And you could have cleared the backlog for the £20 million. And so it's a complete failure of grip on asylum system. You also need, obviously, cooperation with other countries about who's safe to send back to their country of origin and what deal can you get with France and Belgium. But at the moment, promises to send everybody back with no deal to send anybody back is making promises you can't keep. And Patrick's right to say that Boris Johnson was promising something he couldn't do. Well, do you think, Patrick, that Rishi Sunak has a chance of being able to, to achieve what Boris couldn't? Or is that is that just impossible? He did do, of course, that 10-point plan mm. for dealing with the crisis during his summer leadership bid. At the time of recording, at least, he's still sticking by Suella Braverman as, as his home secretary. So I suppose that it could be argued that there are signs that he, he, he is taking the problem very seriously. But, I mean, do you think it actually is an impossible situation for any Prime Minister to solve? What can he do to, to No, I, I don't think it's an impossible situation. I think there are solutions, but they're solutions which come 
with costs attached in form of what a conventional establishment politician like Rishi Sunak, if indeed that's what he turns out to be, would worry about. So there was a very good policy exchange think tank paper towards the beginning of the year, I think February or March, putting out what what a solution would be. And they characterised it in terms of plan A and plan B. Now, plan A would be to get an agreement with France and then probably Belgium and the Netherlands after that. Simply take back migrants that we stopped in the channel. And that would obviously be a very simple, very satisfactory way of achieving a deterrent effect, making it completely pointless for anyone to pay £3,000 to a trafficker for a seat in a dinghy. But that really isn't going to happen. It's certainly not in respect of France. So policy exchanges plan B was to establish a principle that no one coming illegally would get to stay in Britain, even if subsequently judged to have a valid asylum claim and and we would resettle them elsewhere. And at the core of that was offshore processing as standard. Now, the Rwanda thing might have worked in August 2019 when we were dealing with, you know, 10 one day, three the next, 15 the day after, because as Sunda says, we think the capacity would probably turn out to be about 200, although it's, it's said above the line to be unlimited. So we need something much bigger scale than that. And it's been sort of knocking around in Tory circles for many years that we could do offshore processing on a UK overseas territory. And I think under the Michael Howard leadership, even, there was a feasibility study and they came up with Ascension Island, which has no indigenous population, as the obvious and most viable place to establish that. So what Rishi Sunak would have to do is potentially derogate from the from the European Court and Convention on this issue and establish a large processing centre on somewhere like Ascension Island to which everybody who comes illegally across the channel will be taken. And then the the offer to those people would be help to get back to the country of origin or if they're asylum, genuine asylum seekers uh, approved, then they would be resettled by Britain in agreement with another country or they would actually perhaps paid for by the foreign aid budget to to be taken in by a developing country right so that could all be done there would be immense blowback from the British liberal establishment and from certain international bodies clearly but it's doable it's difficult but the pressure from the electorate I think Sunder underestimates and I would cite the YouGov issues poll which shows among 2019 Tory voters and Leave voters this issue is second in importance only to the economy and and would this plan be have to involve leaving the European Court of Human Rights? I think it would certainly involve derogating from its authority in respect of this issue. It might well, and I think probably Suella Braverman would think, it might indeed involve bailing out of the jurisdiction of it. Hmm. And Sunday, I wonder what you make of uh, the reappointment of Suella Braverman to Home Secretary. Do you think that was Sunak's way of trying to to signal to the kind of Tory right or the Johnsonite pro-Brexit right that he does take this issue very seriously? And do you think that Braverman is well-placed or better placed perhaps than former Home Secretaries to grapple this issue? Or do you think it's, we're, becoming, we're getting into a, a scenario whereby every new Home Secretary talks very tough about clamping down on the people traffickers and the and the crisis, but actually ultimately can't do very much about it. Reappointing Suella Braverman was a very political decision. Most people in Westminster think it was the deal Rishi Sunak felt he had to make to make sure there wasn't a contested election. The risk of that 
for dealing with this issue and getting a grip is you've taken the biggest managerial crisis at the most difficult to manage government department and given it to the cabinet minister who's never run a government department when there are cabinet ministers who've run five or six government departments, learnt the ropes, your Grant Shapps, your Michael Goves, your, you know, your other people from the right of the party, on the left of the party. So you risk having, you know, what didn't work for Priti Patel, which was very tough messaging of the kinds of things that Patrick would like to hear more of, but, you know, went down very badly with Liberals, went down very badly with people who wanted a tough approach because they didn't see it happening, went very badly down with people somewhere in the middle. They didn't have a grip. I don't think Patrick's plan B is going to happen before the next general election. And I think the public will wonder why, having spent £150 million for nothing on Rwanda, you're now starting a new plan that won't start before the election. And it won't happen because they won't, they'll won't. they threaten to come out of the ECHR. They won't do it because you'd have withdrawn from the withdrawal agreement with the European Union, So you where you want a more constructive relationship. You'd have wrecked your relationship with America. So the political price inside government, never mind what you know the Guardian says about it, is too high. So go back to plan A, I think, and work out what deal you can make with France and Belgium. Also the deal you need with Albania, with India, with Bangladesh, with countries that have you know lower asylum rates. You make a direct deal that people can return to their countries of origin if you've made the decision quickly. France isn't going to agree to the deal Patrick says that you know he'd like, which is that everybody who's been in France, goes back to France, because they will say, look, we had 100,000 asylum claims last year, so we're not sure why we're taking the 40,000 who got to Britain. What you can do a deal with France on is who should claim in Britain? How do you have a route for maybe that kind of number to come? Will France then take back the people who can't be sent to their countries of origin? There's a doable deal with France, but all of your sovereignty doesn't really get you anywhere without cooperation between France and Britain to manage the channel. And talking about wave machines and pushbacks and all the other things that grab headlines is no solution to the boring work of negotiating the agreement you can get, having the system that can say yes to valid claims and find safe places to return people where it's safe to do so. Thank you, Patrick and Sander. Next, in the aftermath of Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, Mary Wakefield writes in defence of the tech billionaire. James Ball, global editor at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and a columnist at the New European, joins the two of us down the line from Web Summit in Lisbon. Mary, could you tell our listeners why you are a fan of Elon Musk and whether you think there's been a bit of a overreaction to him buying Twitter? I, I wouldn't describe myself as a fan exactly. It's more that I think, you know, he's a man full of imagination and enterprise. His companies are extremely interesting. He seems to be, um, you know, egomaniacal and a bit of a narcissist, obviously, but someone who's also interested in helping humanity, which is always a good thing, I think. It seems to me people have reacted to his purchase of Twitter by suggesting that he's not a good guy, you know, and that he somehow shouldn't be allowed to. But to my mind, someone with that energy and enthusiasm and creativity might bring some some wonderful things to Twitter. James, what do you what do you think? You you're you're not. So uh, positive about Elon buying Twitter, is that right? Um, I think that's fair to say. I mean, Elon tends to be a source of great frustration to his fans and his critics alike. He's clearly a very talented businessman. He's clearly a very intelligent man. And you, you would be silly to deny that he's accelerated the progress of electric cars. 
whether you think electric cars are a good or bad environmental thing is actually quite an open question, but there's talent there. But then he keeps doing needlessly stupid stuff that actually causes sabotage to real projects. He sort of hunted and pushed the hyperloop and sort of aggressively marketed it to cities that were considering long-range transport that would work. And the Hyperloop doesn't and wouldn't fix the problems anyway. He sort of suggested a underground tunneling company to Miami, which is six metres above the seabed. He comes into areas that he knows nothing about, implies everyone in it are idiots, suggests problems that won't work and slows down real progress. The issue is you never quite know whether you're going to get the good Elon who built an amazing set of technologies with a SpaceX company or the bad Elon who just exhausts everyone and acts like an idiot and in the way that only quite clever, quite out there people can be. You know, it's a very special sort of stupidity to achieve. James, can you always tell which Elon it is? I mean, I remember people laughing at his rockets sort of saying they'll never work and, and how can you have the temerity to do this? And yet here we are with SpaceX delivering satellites for the American government, for the European Space Agency. How do you know what's going to work, what isn't? Isn't it genius, partly a matter of kind of punting things that other people think are ridiculous in the first place? I think that's exactly the question. I'm actually, I'm speaking to you from Lisbon at a tech conference called Web Summit. And there are quite a lot of people here who are generally fans of Elon. And the line that you tend to hear is, you know, people have lost a lot of money betting against Elon Musk. But what you're sort of hearing more, com- and, you know, let us acknowledge is SpaceX's rockets are the best rockets in the world right now. They're better than any of the government ones. But this is not really an area with technical problems to solve. It's an area with business model and regulatory problems to solve. And Elon Musk is a difficult owner for something like Twitter. He can't claim to be accountable to shareholders or to a board. And he's a man with heavily regulated products in countries that are very politically sensitive. It creates a lot of vulnerabilities. And the way he's moved in early shows a fundamental lack of understanding of the very basics of the industry is in. And it's a lot of the ways he's doing things and approaching things are set. You know, Twitter was terribly run beforehand. It, it was known. He's not sort of stepped in and taken a mistake his bed to put a hammer to it but I think as someone who I was speaking to earlier put it each day the optimistic case for Elon running Twitter dwindles a little bit further but you're right you don't you don't know which Elon it is. James what are you worried about in terms of Twitter that Elon has either done or said he's going to do or might do what are what are the things that you're most worried about? So I, I have to be the typical blue tick liberals here and uh, flag, you know, he's coming for my tick. He says I have to pay for it, which isn't intrinsically bad in itself. It's just those came about because Twitter lost a lawsuit when people were damaged by other people impersonating them online. That liability doesn't change or leave Twitter. So he's going to have to engineer something like one that's available for free. Similarly, He's got to keep advertising confidence and he's got to look at fraudsters. If anyone can get something that makes them look verified and legit, what's to stop someone going HMRC, we're contacting you because we've detected illegal activity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's retaining the kind of flag system, isn't he? So you've got a mechanism by which 
accounts can be verified to a certain extent. Oh, right. except stealing credit cards is just the easiest thing on the internet. So, you know, you, you have this issue where he doesn't seem to understand that. But even before that, Twitter was losing its active users. And an active user is someone who, a very active user, a heavy user of Twitter, is someone who tweets three or four times a week. They go on Twitter for the verified users who tweet 10 or, you know, 15 times a day. And if you suddenly start trying to extract from that user base, you're going to destroy the engine of your network. These are the people every other network coddles. YouTube shares revenue with them. Instagram shares revenue with them. Musk's trying to go, you need to pay for making my site work. And people will rightly go, piss off. If it fails, it fails, James, doesn't it? I mean, potentially a lot of, lot of creative upsides. I love the idea of the sort of, you know, increased freedom of speech. And, and if this is a bad idea and people migrate, then that's, isn't that how, how, how business works? I mean, it, of course it's how business works. I am not of the view that Elon shouldn't have been allowed to buy it or should be banned or regulators should step in. I just think it was a stupid purchase for him that will make him miserable and a stupid purchase for the operation of a service that I like. Everyone who's on Twitter likes saying it's hellish, but actually most of us like being on there. And I think he'll run it badly and make it worse for its users. But I also think he'll be miserable in the process. Sorry, it has also restricted free speech. I mean, there's, there's various things you know, that I've looked for that don't appear on Twitter. There is a problem with censorship on Twitter that hopefully he'll alleviate. He's going to discover moderation is hard, as everyone who always steps in does. I, I don't quite know how much I agree there's, there's a censorship problem, but this is a good chance for people to find out. You know, maybe as he sort of changes policies and changes how he does it, we'll find that stuff was being suppressed. But I'm a bit sceptical that there was as much going on there as people suspect as there was. And he, he's got outside engineers reviewing the code, so... He's clearly willing to show things when he finds them. So, you know, let's let's sit and wait. Uh, James, we also have in the magazine this week a piece by Cindy Yu about WeChat, because one of the things that Elon said is that he wants Twitter to be a everything app, you know, rather like WeChat. Do you think that's actually possible for him to pull off? I mean, Cindy points out in her piece that one of the advantages that the creators of WeChat have is that the great Chinese firewall means that there's not so much competition, whereas Elon would have all these um, rival apps and websites and so on to to contend with. So do you think his ambitions for Twitter, if he really does want to make it an everything app, are just unrealistic? That ambition is about the only way that Twitter could turn into the big success story of Musk's other companies and make him a real financial return, although he says that's not his motivation, particularly with this one. But he's got two big problems, well, three big problems. The first is, it sounds like Sydney U's identified, which is it's easy to build a monopoly when the government's helping you keep out all competition. There are established, good, easy competitors to this that people like and won't see an intrinsic reason to switch from. Contactless payment works quickly and easily. Messaging works easily. We've got these services distributed. We've also got competition authorities across the world. But that's all problem one. Problems two and three are Google and Apple. And at the moment, they are effectively the everything app. Everything on your iPhone has to be approved by Apple. Google's a bit more liberal, but they have a say in it. Why on earth would they voluntarily hand over all of that power to Elon Musk? And so between the competition and between the device makers, 
I think you could build Twitter into a more integrated app with more features, but I don't think the idea of anything like what the Chinese apps can do in terms of range is feasible. And Mary, just finally, I'm perhaps asking you to play a bit of armchair psychologist now, but I got the impression from your column that you're very interested in trying to to understand Musk's kind of motivations as a as a person as much as you are as a sort of businessman. I mean, what what do you think is his driving motivation for the things he's doing on Twitter? Is because he, he does like to sort of troll a bit, doesn't he, when it comes to things like Twitter? Is that part of what I, I what, think? Yeah, I mean, I, I I would disagree with James. I I take him at his word. I think he's been very honest about both his you know, his flaws and his virtues. Um, and if he says he wants to buy Twitter in order to ensure greater free speech, then then, then I would believe him. I might be his second or his third wife, I don't know. Texts <laughs> were revealed in which she said, come on, Elon, do it. You've got to, you know, save us from the sort of tyranny of kind of woke ideology. And I honestly think that's, that's what he's doing. Thank you, Mary and James. Finally, Ascender Maxtone Graham writes about her hatred of the Guitar World Cup. She joins me now with Spectator columnist Rod Little. Ascender, despite your uh, lack of interest in the sport, which you admit in your piece, you say that you have enjoyed hating the World Cup for the last 12 years. Could you tell us why? Well, I I remember the day when my now 20-year-old son was eight. Apparently Mbappe, who's playing in this current World Cup was only 11, such a long time, half a, half a childhood, half a generation ago, when this ridiculous plan was, was launched to hold it in a country which apparently has no history of football. And, and it has been a 12-year rant around my supper table. And I feel I must be one of many, perhaps millions of mothers who've <laughs> presided around this long, long time of anger. And what, what are the sort of uh, dinner table points that spark fury then in your family? Yes, well, we all need something to reunite around our hatred of. Yeah. And I suppose it's the, it's the expense for any normal person yeah. of getting there, for example. So no normal person who might be able to go to France and stay in a youth hostel and, and hitchhike from city to city and make friends with other fans. You can't do any of that. You have to go the ex- do an expensive package and sleep in an incredibly expensive hotel or on a cruise liner for mm. £350 a night on an inclusive package. That's one reason. Of course, then the, the dreaded deaths of the migrant workers which has been growing up and this ridiculous idea that technology could solve the problem of the 50 degrees mm. in summer and rather like the Irish protocol technology will solve will solve it all <laughs> you know and of course technology could not solve that so they had to then change their minds hold it in winter which means that our lovely local football will have to stop mm. no lovely matches in December for Chelsea v Fulham or whatever what you, what you do in your piece Ascender though you, you do conclude by saying that you're, you're going to be watching the first match when it, when it all does um, kick off Whereas Rod, you wrote about Qatar in your column last week and you concluded by saying that actually you were not going to watch this year's tournament. Could you remind our listeners as to why you're not going to be watching? Well, for many of the reasons which have just been outlined, to be honest. It is a country where there is no history of football and where you can't play football at a civilised time of year. It's also a country with an abominable human rights record and the stadium in which the games are being played was built by slave labour. And of course, Qatar itself, as, as, a, as a venue for the World Cup, was a fix. A fix. We know it. It was corrupt. So for all those reasons, I don't want to watch it. But then, then there are other reasons. I can't stand that horse-faced clown Southgate for a start. He's a sententious, <laughs> sanctimonious oaf. And if he was simply sententious and sanctimonious, that would be fine. But he's also possibly the worst manager England have had for years. Certainly we have now got the worst set of results 
we have had for 70 years. And yet the man is inviolable because he bobs down onto one knee any time anyone challenges him. I cannot abide the bloke, nor do I like our preening overpaid footballers. So, so there's that reason as well. For a whole month, you'll have to turn your face away from the world of football then, not watching your local home stuff and not watching what you just have to do your sewing instead. Yes, well, it's terrible because the third point, the third reason I don't really want to watch it is because I'm very interested in how my team's getting on in the championship and I'm excited and, you know, we're doing all right, playing again tonight and it's very exciting. It's far more exciting than watching England play football and, you know, our players are on the sort of wages which, so you can kind of relate to them, you know, it's, it's, it's proper football. So, I deeply resent the fact that, that our season has been cut off like this. But I ought to say, I've always loved World Cups because it, it appeals to two of my greatest, greatest loves in life, uh, one of which is football and the other of which is hating foreigners. And, and, <laughs> that, that, and I can remember, you know, getting up at five in the morning in that glorious summer of 1970 and making myself beans on toast uh, as a, as a nine-year-old and watching Brazil, Czechoslovakia, Mexico, Russia, uh, because for some reason, which I don't understand now, <coughs> the BBC showed all those games at six o'clock in the morning on, on, on television. And maybe you could be, maybe you will be tempted this year. I bet you'll, I bet you'll just get into it. I just think I'd, by sort of 10th of December, you'll just be wanting to have a quick look on a Sunday. Well, yes, what, would you at least be sort of rage, rage watching it, Rod? No, no, it's worse than that. It would just be ennui. It would be ennui at seeing England perform. They always perform when Southgate is in charge. I cannot bear, I could bear to watch us being beaten by the Iranians, but I don't think, <laughs> but I don't think I could bear to watch us being beaten by the bloody Welsh. You know, so I, I, I don't want it for that reason. There is, of course, a good case for England not playing in that first game against Iran, because there are calls, especially from Ukraine, that Iran should be kicked out of the tournament uh, because of the, the, the terrible repression which is going on in that country at the moment. And some of the Iranian players, to their enormous credit, uh, have, uh, have spoken out about this. But, you know, I, sub- I might watch the USA versus Iran just because, because you know, it's like, Godzilla versus Superman, isn't it? Do you think the stadiums will be half empty? And that's what I'm slightly hoping. I'm slightly hoping that we'll, we'll be vindicated in our 12 years of hatred of this of this thing by the by the half empty stadiums, rather a sense of damp squibbery about the whole thing in the end. Or will it all sell and be a huge success? And also, which of those do we really want? I think we probably do want it to. <laughs> it's a bit of a waste of 12 years of hatred. Yeah, exactly. If it, doesn't, if it, does, if it, if it succeeds, yeah. doesn't and it? I did say with the Olympics, I remember everyone was quite cynical about the Olympics and they turned out to be... Then we did all fall in love with them. But, but there's also this, which is which is a dark side of myself, which I probably shouldn't share publicly. But that's the England fans who are travelling to Iran, uh, and especially that bloody band that plays The Great Escape every now and again. I wouldn't be wildly upset if the Qatari police had a bit of a go at them at some point in time. I mean, I do find them, you know, staggeringly obnoxious. 
Do you know anyone who is going to the World Cup? I mean, I don't know any. I don't know anyone who's going actually. So because normally one would. Well, I rather want Rod to go just to write a piece about it. Yes, but exactly. I, I wonder if you'll be around. Well, I know, you see, I know. No, a World Cup is should be on television. I've never been to a World Cup. I don't hugely want to go. I like watching it on television with my family. I like hurling the sort of abuse which would get me evicted from a from any ground other than my own Millwall at the at the opposing players. I like all that stuff about it. I, you know, I used to do a sweepstake for every World Cup for all the members of our family, and we'd all have about six teams. So you'd get my, you know, my son cheering for Chile or Costa Rica, and and I'd be forced to cheer for a country I really loathe, such as Turkey. You know, I, I really loved that, but but. I, I, I just can't work up the enthusiasm for it. I also loved, I mean, the last European Championships, I loved doing a, a daily diary for the spectator, which kind of ignored the football completely and focused on my perceived prejudices and loathings of the various countries involved. I, you know, I, I thought that was great fun to do, but I don't know if I can work up the energy to do that, to be honest. Do you think we're going to have to get used to the idea of future Qatar-like scenarios when it comes to World Cups. If it is going to be the case that the privilege of holding the tournament will forever go now to the highest bidder or to all this kind of back grim deals. Oh, you know, is Qatar going to be the first in a new era? Yes, we'll be we ever rather... able to go to Sunderland for a World Cup match again, which was, right. would, be so, would be so lovely. And it just seems rather deadening that we have to go to these newly built solar stadiums yeah. in the middle of, between motorways. In the, in a... No, it's, I think it's, it's not the start. I think really big marquee sporting events in the future will tend to go to totalitarian countries because they are the sort of countries which can push through the the building of stadia very very quickly the planning regulations uh, ignored the shoveling of working class people out of their homes in order to make way for for stadiums and we've seen that we saw that with china and we saw it to a degree with brazil and you remember the kind of trouble we had in britain with the 2012 olympics which in the end were a great success but in the lead up to them you know the the howls of complaint at every single juncture about every single planning inquiry it's much easier to deal with that sort of stuff if you're russia china or qatar well one element that you wrote in your column last week rod which you could say is very infuriating aspect of it, but also in, a, in its own kind of way quite funny, is watching the way that sponsors and other figures in, in the World Cup having to kind of contort themselves over the politics of the whole thing. The kind of hypocrisy of it is as funny as it is infuriating, isn't it? It is, it is. I mean, Hummel particularly is a Danish company which makes all three football shirts. Why Denmark needs three changes of strip is simply down to money, of course, to fleece the, the public. And they've made their strips, but they've said they're making them dull. <laughs> they're, they're making the strips dull because they don't want to give support to the Qatar World Cup and they don't want their name associated with the Qatar World Cup. In which case, don't make the shirts, you greedy Scandinavian hypocrites. <laughs> you know, just, it, it's hilarious. And Southgate, I've heard him rabbiting on only yesterday about how he thinks that all the workers who built those stadiums really want the World Cup to go ahead. <laughs> including the dead ones, Gareth? I kept hoping it might somehow change their minds in those 12 years. It never quite happened. I know. And they just thought, well, surely it won't actually happen. Well, in my, my final question to both of you then is that now that the World Cup is, is nearly here, what can we collectively hate next? Mm, well, I've said the opening of phase one of um, HS2, which I'm yes, going to pour my hatred on for the next 10, I think it's 2033. So that's the next 
good 11 years of And Rod, what can we all collectively hate now? Well, where, where's the next World Cup? I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely have forgotten. But, but uh, the trouble is all of these... It, it's funny, it's gone full circle. All of these big sporting events. There, there was a kind of time when they were about sport, but, but they've always been mixed up with politics. But they're perhaps more mixed up with politics than, than, than they, they've ever been before. And so... I, I, I just tend to shy away from them. Uh, I can't abide them. Thank you, Ascender and Rod. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I do hope you'll join me again next week. 